The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning or afternoon or evening or whatever time of day it is that you're watching this video or listening to this message. My name's Justin and I am the lead pastor of Sacred City Church, a gospel-centered missional church in the Quad Cities that I planted with a handful of folks about eight years ago. Uh, this is our second week of doing, I guess, virtual church. This is not the way it's supposed to be, uh, but we're making the best of it during this time of crisis in our world. Before I jump into our message this morning and studying the text of Scripture that is before us, I'd like to extend an invitation to you. If you would like to connect with us, we've got a couple of options for you during this season of social isolation. First, you can like us, Sacred City Church, on Facebook, and that will enable you to hear from our pastors four times a day. We are getting on there. We're calling it the daily office, 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and we're just opening up uh, the book of the Bible. We're opening up the Psalms. We're reading a Psalm for that day, sharing a few thoughts, and then praying through it. And it's our prayer that this would help orient us around God and God's word, and it would give us a peace that passes understanding. And so if you um, would like to do that with us, like us on Facebook, and we'd love to be an encouragement to you. Secondly, uh, for the last eight years, we have been gathering together in smaller groups of people that meet in homes that we call missional communities. They are more than just a small group. They are a group of people who love and care for one another as family. They encourage one another, they bear each other's burdens, they pray for one another, they meet each other's needs. And these are just normal people. They aren't super spiritual people. They're just normal people who meet together and care for one another and and, uh, talk about the Bible, talk about scripture, answer questions, do things like that. Well, normally we have these missional communities spread all across the Quad Cities. And normally there's kind of a high barrier of entry. You have to be invited by someone. You have to show up at one of these groups um, that meet in someone else's home. And that can be, you know, a little scary for some people. You might not want to show up at a person's house that you don't know. Well, right now, all of our missional communities are meeting online. Most of them through an app called Zoom. So if you'd like to virtually gather with a group of people who would love to get to know you, talk about this sermon with you, pray with you, and walk through this crazy season of life with you, you can check out the link in the description of this video. We've created kind of a landing page for all of our missional communities that you can put your information in there and we can send you a link and the time of day and the day and the time that these missional communities are going to meet. And you can pop into that virtual missional community and get to know some people. And we really hope this is an easy opportunity for you to uh, be encouraged and uh, get connected with our church. So hopefully that will work for you. 
And now I'm going to head pray. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into our text this morning. Father, we come before you now. We bow our heads, <clears throat> we bow our hearts, and we ask you to speak to us. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. This is not an ideal situation. Um, I would much prefer being in the presence of these people that are watching this sermon, be able to see their face and then be able to see mine and be able to sense their spirit and they could sense mine. And there's a weird distance here, even with this blessing and benefits of technology. And so I ask that you would unite our hearts through your spirit and by faith, that you would allow your word to come alive on the page and um, speak to their hearts. Father, that you would speak to children, you'd speak to teenagers, you'd speak to adults, you'd speak to everyone that's listening, and that you would do something unique and special in our midst today. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified and that we'd find our great hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are going to open up our Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We have been... For the last few months, we've been studying this letter of Paul to the Colossians, and we're going to just keep on working our way through. If you want to get caught up, you can go back on our website, in our podcast, and you can get caught up on all of these um, sermons that we've preached so far. But today, we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Very short scripture. Let me go ahead and read it again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says these two verses sum up neatly the entire message of the letter. I would agree and maybe even take it one giant step further and say these two verses sum up neatly the entire life of the Christian. Paul breaks down the life of a Christian into two distinct phases here. And that's our two points for today's sermon. Phase one, receiving Jesus. And phase two, walking in Jesus. Step one is how a person becomes a Christian. And step two is how a person grows or lives or matures as a Christian. So first, let's take a look at step one. How does a person become a Christian. Paul makes it really simple here. He brings the cookies down and puts them on the bottom shelf for us. Paul says to the Colossian Christians, here's how you became a, Christ, a, a Christian. You received Jesus the Lord. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. Well, what does this mean? Well, first notice that become a, becoming a Christian isn't about something you do. It isn't about something you give out. So many people think that becoming a Christian has something to do with doing something good or moral. It's about me becoming a better person. It's about me becoming a more moral person. Or maybe it's about me breaking some addiction in my life and kind of getting control of my life. Maybe it's about me joining a church. Listen, all of those things are good things, but that isn't how a person becomes a Christian. The only way to become a Christian is to receive something. 
It's to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Hear that. To become a Christian is to receive something, to take something into yourself. It's not about giving something or pouring something out. Rather, it's about taking something in. Think of yourself as an empty cup. What do you have to pour out? What do you have to give? Nothing. Now, that might be a little depressing to you, but just think about it. What's an empty cup for? Well, an empty cup is meant to be filled. The same is true of us. We are an empty cup, spiritually speaking, and we are meant to be filled. Filled with what? Well, what does Paul say we're meant to be filled with? He says we're meant to be filled with Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, there's so much in that little phrase. Um, it's way more than just Jesus' name, right? It's not his like last name, middle name, you know, or something like that. No, it represents his humanity, who he was in, in, as a man that walked this earth. It represents his divinity, who he was as the son of God. It represents his role or his office at prophet, priest, and king over all of humanity. This phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord, is a succinct way of saying kind of everything he's already said before. It's a summary of everything from chapter 1. That Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's filled with the very fullness of God himself. That Jesus is the head of the body, the church. That Jesus is the mystery of God. Jesus is the treasure chest full of all wisdom and all knowledge. And this is the good news of Christianity, that this Jesus that's that expansive, that glorious, is willing to move into you. That's what it means to become a Christian. It means to receive the fullness of God himself in Christ in your soul. Well, you might say, well, how do you do that? How do you receive Christ into your soul. Well, look at verse 7 in our text today. It says this. Just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. Okay, first off, you receive Jesus Christ through being taught what who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Another way to say that is, they, this means they heard the gospel preached, that no one can receive Christ into their soul without hearing the gospel preached. Let's flip our Bibles over to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Paul here goes, gets a little explicit in how a person receives Christ. Chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. Here's what he says. This is how you receive Christ Jesus our Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Justified means made right with God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how does a person become a Christian? Well, first, somebody preaches the gospel, preaches the message of Jesus Christ, preaches the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that person hears that message and kind of understands what it means for them, that they can be made right with God, that they can be justified, that all their sins can be forgiven, that Christ can move into them and they get uh, counted in Christ and they can be, their sins are washed away and they, though they were like scarlet, now they become white as snow, that this person becomes brand new because of what Christ has done and they can, they believe it in their heart and they confess it with their mouth and they say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we see all of those words, Christ Jesus, the Lord, or Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now let's just go through that a little bit. What does it mean? Well, first Jesus, this is his Name. This is the name given to him by an angel and given to him by his mother Mary. And it means Jesus was an actual human being. We have, a we have a record of his life. If you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see uh, wh who this Jesus was, what he said, what he did, etc., etc. You, you learn about his life. You learn about his death. You learn about his resurrection, right? That's who Jesus is. But he's also Christ. And the word Christ means Messiah, that he was promised thousands of years beforehand. Actually, in the very beginning, in Genesis, in the first few chapters of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised to send a man that would conquer Satan, that would stomp the head of Satan and, and would, would receive a, a wound in himself, but would conquer death, hell, and the grave. Well, that promised Messiah... You know, it was foreshadowed all through the Old Testament by every basically great man, King David, etc. But then it was completely fulfilled by Jesus. The man was also the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was our, the representative of the human race. Now, what does that mean? He was our representative. Well, right now we have representatives in Congress, in Senate, and they're voting on our behalf. We hope, right? They're, they're standing in the place for us and they're voting for us and their vote counts as our vote. Well, Jesus was our representative. He obeyed God perfectly in our place as the representative for all of the human race. And then he went a step farther and he died the death that we deserve for our rebellion and our sin against God. And he took our place and he took our punishment. This is called penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus made us right with God through his obedience to God and also through his sacrificial death in our place for our sins on the cross. Now, it also says that he's the Lord. So Jesus, the man, Christ, the Savior, and the Lord. Think of Lord as king of the universe, that Jesus was God in the flesh. He's king of all kings and Lord of all lords. And every knee will eventually bow before Jesus Christ. Now, to put it simply, that means Jesus, when we accept this message, 
that he was a man who really lived and really died and was really resurrected. And he was the Christ that took our place as our Savior, right? As our Messiah. And he's also our Lord. This requires us to accept him and to submit to him as our Lord. That means Jesus is our King. Jesus establishes our values. Jesus guides our thinking. Jesus directs our behavior. That we as Christians submit to Jesus over and above anyone or anything else in the world. So we look to Jesus for everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. So how does a person become a Christian? You receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. You respond to the message of the gospel In faith, you believe in your heart and you confess it with your mouth. You say, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe Jesus was a man, that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Lord. And that's what it means to call on Jesus, right? We come under his authority. And if we do that in faith, here's the supernatural reality of the gospel that Jesus through his spirit moves into us in faith. Now think of it like this, just like coffee gets poured into a coffee cup without any positive effort on the coffee, part, coffee cup's part, right? God's spirit gets poured into our hearts and fills us with the fullness of God. We are the coffee cup, right? And he's pouring into us by faith. So becoming a Christian is not about achieving anything. It's not a ladder that you climb and eventually you meet God. It's not achieved after you reach a certain level of maturity or morality or goodness. It's not like some video game where you reach level 50 and you get a new skin or something. No, Christianity is not achieved, rather it is received. That means the first step in becoming a Christian is often just admitting that you're empty. Now, if anything, during the season that we're in right now, we should be able to admit that you're empty. I know for me, the first few days of this lockdown and this quarantine, things were going well. I was feeling pretty good. I had a little extra time to think and to relax and didn't have the deadline, as many deadlines at work. And then all of a sudden, the last few days, I started realizing my emptiness. I started realizing how frustrated I was, how anxiety was just stirring under the surface, how impatient I was, how lacking grace I was, how frustrated I was getting with the kids. And and I really couldn't find a place to find in my house where I could get what I was looking for, that I was, in a sense, I was spiritually empty and I don't know how long I can last being locked down in this little house, right? Have you, any of you guys felt that yet? Have you felt, have you reached into your soul and you were trying to tap into something and you realize, uh uh-oh, it's empty down there, right? Well, the first movement of becoming a Christian is realizing that you're empty. It begins in humility. And the hymn, Rock of Ages, says it like this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, Come to thee for dress. That means I'm naked in my own righteousness. I have no righteousness and I come to Christ to receive the clothes of his righteousness. 
helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. See, for some folks, this is the hardest part of Christianity. Seeing yourself and all of your goodness and all of your resources and all of your accomplishments, all of your potential for greatness as spiritually empty, spiritually bankrupt. See, many times the thing that keeps us away from Jesus is actually comparing ourselves to others and thinking that we've got a little bit more than they do, right? We see people who are doing worse things than we are, and we say, oh, I'm not empty. I'm not empty. Look, they're empty. I'm at least a little bit better than they are. Listen, when I was in high school, this is how I related to the world, right? I was a self-righteous little punk, right? I, I my coaches and everybody around me, we, we kind of classified people and, you know, the, the, you know, being good in school and being an athlete, you were like the top tier and, and those that, that, you know, were lazy and, and, and those that couldn't pull their act together and those that were doing drugs and those that were drinking on the weekends and those, those people were, were way worse than we were. So we could look down in pride on them. We say, I'm better than they are. Now that idea, that concept actually kept me far away from Jesus. So it wasn't necessarily my, quote, immorality that was keeping me from Jesus. It was my, my perceived morality, the fact that I actually thought I was better than somebody else and I was a pretty good person. That is what was keeping me from Jesus. Listen, here's the reality of Christianity. If you want to compare yourself to someone, and it's almost inevitable, we always compare ourselves to people. But if you want to get a sense of where you're at, right? Where am I at? How am I doing, spiritually speaking? All you have to do is compare yourself to Jesus. See, Jesus is our standard of goodness. What does it mean to be good? Here's the standard. Here's the line. Jesus. Anything behind that line is deserving of death, hell, and the grave. Anything above that line is deserving heaven, right? That's how you get in. You, all you have to do is be as good as Jesus. That's it, right? That's not good news to you, is it? No, it's not. Why? Because Jesus could love his enemies. Because Jesus could die for his enemies. Because Jesus could forgive freely. Jesus never held a grudge. Jesus could allow people into his inner circle like Judas without being separated from him uh, relationally right? Jesus could heal. Jesus for, could forgive. Jesus could love. Jesus could give grace. Jesus is not like us, right? We're not as good as Jesus. And the reality is, if you're less good than Jesus, you are spiritually empty and you need a Savior. So step one is this. Receive Christ Jesus the Lord by faith. Okay, step one, boom. What's step two? Step two is this. So walk in him. So walk in him. Now, what does this mean? Well, as you look back in our text, chapter two, verse six and seven, you're going to see that 
uh, Paul breaks many rules of, of clear and concise communication here, okay? It's usually helpful when you're giving a talk or you're writing a letter or you're writing a book to stick with it one metaphor, right? But Paul said, he throws that out the window and Paul mixes metaphors like mad here. I want you to look at verse seven. He says this, rooted, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding and thanksgiving. Okay, these are all a bit confusing, but they all tell us something unique about walking the walk of Christ or walking the walk of a Christian. First, look at his first metaphor. He says this in verse seven, rooted, that's it. That's the analogy. That's the metaphor. One word, rooted. Rooted in Jesus. So the first step to walking in Jesus is to realize that we're rooted in Jesus. Now, this is, of course, an organic metaphor. It's meant to show us our organic union with Christ. Think of a seed being sown into soil. See, the message of the gospel or Jesus himself is the seed and your heart is the soil. That seed comes in when you put your faith in Jesus, but that seed isn't meant to just stay a seed. It's meant to germinate and put down roots and then it's meant to bust up through the soil and produce a tree that blesses the world with its shade and with its fruit. The same is true of you. As Jesus germinates in your heart, as he puts down roots in your soul, he's going to change you. He's going to mature you. He's going to make you into a person that can bless the world in some way. Many of you are doing that right now. You're writing letters to people. You are calling one another. You're caring for one another. You're buying groceries for one another. You're checking in on neighbors. Before this all happened, maybe we were really self-centered. We were just thinking about our own needs and our own plans and our own family. But as the seed of the gospel goes deeper into your soil, you get maturity. You get stronger shoulders. You can carry more weight of responsibility. And that's meant to bless the world. So first metaphor, he says, you're rooted in Jesus. You have an organic union. That means we have to stay connected with Jesus or we, we lose this life-giving reality that we have. Secondly, he says this, verse 7, built up in him. So rooted and built up in him. Okay, this built up, think this is clearly a construction metaphor, right? Think of home improvement. Think of adding on to your house, right? Think of the work that needs to be done. Now, this is, uh, this tells us a lot of things about the life of a Christian and what does it mean to walk uh, the walk of faith. And, but one thing is, I want, I want you to, to, to kind of hear specifically is this means in one sense that we are always under construction. See, a Christian never arrives. Am I a Christian? Absolutely. But have I arrived? A absolutely not. I am under construction. If you could see, see the state of my soul right now, you would see the yellow tape going across it that says danger under construction, right? There's always stuff going on and, and, and areas in my heart that needs work. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote that he says this. He says, 
and I'm going to paraphrase right now. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. So that, that right there, here's the metaphor from Paul. Imagine yourself a living house. Well, when, here, here's why we call on Jesus. We see something in our soul that's broken. We see, you know what? I've got some rooms in my house that need uh, renovation. I've got anxiety. I've got depression. I've got fear. I've got whatever it is. I've got sin that lies lurking in a closet. So I need to invite Jesus into the, my soul, into my living house, and I need to have Jesus do some renovation. And we do that, And but here's the surprising reality. When we do that, we realize Jesus is still working. Maybe, maybe he does some of the things we want him to do. Maybe he gets us over that addiction to alcohol. Maybe he gets us through that breakup that we needed to get through. And then we're like, okay, Jesus, chill out. And Jesus still is doing work. And what's he doing? Well, Lewis says this, we thought he was going to make us into a nice little cottage, right? So we just wanted him to, to make our quaint little home a little bit more livable. But what we come to find out is Jesus is actually making us into a mansion that's worthy of him dwelling within us. And so when we invite him in to do some work and then he keeps doing work, he keeps adding rooms on and, and you know, puts out a wing there and puts out a wing there and maybe he's digging a swimming pool in the backyard. And Jesus is constantly doing work in our soul. And oftentimes it's work that maybe we didn't even think we, knew we needed done, right? He's working on our addiction to money. He's working on our addiction to people's approval, right? He's working on our need to slow down, our need for patience, and we're like, we don't, we, I didn't want that. I didn't want you to do that work. All I wanted you to do was that, I wanted a kitchen remodel. That's all I wanted in my soul. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not just doing a kitchen remodel here. I'm adding on and I'm making you into a, a place that's worthy of me coming in to dwell. So that's the construction metaphor. Jesus is at work on us and we never arrive. We are the construction project that never ends until we die or Christ comes back. And in that day, we'll be complete. Now, this gives us both humility and hope, right? Humility, I'm never done. Like you when you invite somebody into your home and there's construction underway, you invite them in, you go, hey, I, I, I apologize for the dust. I apologize for the mess. Things are under construction. Well, the same thing is True with us. If you're in relationship with me, if you're in relationship with another person, hey, I apologize for the dust. I'm constantly under construction. I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not who I'm gonna be either. Christ is at work on me. But yet it gives us a lot of hope too because it means that Jesus is making us better than we were before. I thank God that I am not as self-righteous of a little punk as I was in high school, that God has done a lot of work in my soul. But I pray that in 10, 20 years that the Lord grant it, I would be left less self-righteous then as I am now. Third metaphor. So we've got one rooted organic union, two built up in Jesus, construction, work, improvement metaphor. And three, we have established in the faith. Now, this established, this is, there's teaching, there's content, but this is most likely a metaphor from the legal world. Think of going to your lawyer and establishing a business. Or when we set this church up and we established a nonprofit, a 501c3. N.T. Wright says this, your salvation and your identity in Christ is as settled and established as a legal document. 
when you sell a home and you close on that home. That closing gives you a sense of relief. Why? Because it's settled. The matter is settled. It is established. You've sold that home and now somebody else owns that home. Now what all of this is telling us here, like our salvation is a settled matter that our identity is settled. It's established in Christ, that nothing can take it away. Nothing can change it. Nothing can cause us to lose our salvation. It's absolutely established. Okay, so those three metaphors here shows us a few things. One, it shows us that we are organically connected to Jesus, that he is alive and he's living in us. Secondly, it shows us that we're under construction and Jesus is constantly working on us, that we never arrive. We are always in need of Jesus to improve us, to fix us, and to beautify us. But in the midst of all of that, here it is, listen, we should never be in doubt that we are in Christ and that we are Christians. That's settled. Now, what does that mean? That means we should never look at our shortcomings and go, man, I must not be a Christian, right? Some of us, we look at the growth of the organic growth of our relationship with Christ and we see a sprout sticking up this tall and we go, I must not be a Christian because I can't provide shade for anybody or I'm not producing any fruit. And it's like, no, 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 you are a Christian. That matter is established. You just need to grow up. You just need more time, more time with Jesus. Or you look into your soul and you see, you find a room that needs to be renovated, a room that you forgot about, a room that's in the basement and it's full of dead men's bones, right? You go into that room and you realize that you're still just as selfish. You're still, you know, just as fearful. You still have just as much anxiety. Now here, listen, you can find that room and that's a reality, but here you can't go, oh, I must not be a Christian because look at the way I feel or look at how I think, or look at my desire to go do that sin or go pursue that lifestyle. I must not be a Christian. No, 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 no. You're just under construction. If you've confessed Jesus Christ with your mouth and you've believed in your heart, that matter is established. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. He's at work in you, and that's good news. So it's good news when you find that room that needs renovated. It's good news. It reminds you, oh yeah, I need Jesus. I still need Jesus. But Paul goes on and he gives us one more metaphor. He says, we should, the last one, so you see it just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding. Now, we don't use that word too much. Abound means to go beyond your boundaries to be abundant, to go back to our empty cup analogy, it means to be poured into to such an extent that you overflow your bounds, that the coffee going into the cup overflows the cup. Here's what Paul is saying. Walking with Jesus, walking in Christ, should look like this. As an empty cup... (laughs) We go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you have what I need. And Jesus pours into us everything we need for life and godliness. And as we receive from Jesus, we overflow with thanksgiving to him. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to walk 
the walk of faith. You find yourself lacking. You find yourself empty, but you don't go to the world to find your needs. You don't go to Netflix, right? You don't go to your spouse. You don't go to pornography. You don't go to whatever it is. You go to Jesus Christ to find exactly what you need. And you take your need to him in prayer, in solitude. Maybe you go for a walk. Maybe you get alone with your Bible in a quiet nook of the house and you say, Jesus, I'm lacking peace and I need your peace. And Jesus pours into you a peace that passes all understanding. And that is meant to fill up your cup in such a way that you receive from Jesus everything you need for life and godliness. And that overflows in thanksgiving and worship to him. What do I need from Jesus right now? What do I need? Do I need peace? Do I need security? Do I need courage? Do I need comfort? Go to Jesus in prayer and receive it. Now here's an important principle. One that we miss a lot. Jesus taught us to pray. Give me my daily bread. From that we get an important principle. When Jesus teaches us to pray, give me my daily bread. He's teaching us to pray pray for our immediate needs right now in the moment and that Jesus promises to meet those immediate needs right now. Here's where we make a mistake. We're dealing with anxiety. Anxiety is always, it's it's never, it's very rarely dealing with something I need in the moment. Anxiety is wanting security about the future. Anxiety is wanting now the resources I think I might need down the road, right? Jesus doesn't promise to give you enough now to provide for next week and next month. He provides what you need right now in the moment. So what does that look? What do you mean by that, Justin? Well, you might be thinking down the road, what is it going to look like if I can't work for the next month? And you get really anxious in the moment. Why? Because you're wanting next month's resources right now, right? It's not going to happen. Many people think, as a parent, you get this little child and sometimes you think about what happened, what would happen if I lose this child? I don't think I could handle it. I don't think I could. Oh, don't even entertain those thoughts because you're wanting future resources. If that would ever happen, you want them right now. You don't have that right now. He gives us the grace we need for the moment. He promises us to give us exactly what we need in this moment. So we get enough to get through this moment. We get enough to get through this day. We don't get tomorrow's resources today. Jesus meets our need in the moment. See, anxiety and worry demand tomorrow's provision today. And that's not how God works. So we pray, give me what I need in this moment, Lord. And then when he does, he does. Okay, I can move on. I can get through this day. I can get through this moment. I can step back into the, into the living room with the kids and I can put a smile on my face and I can be encouraging and I can speak life into them and I can be hopeful. I can, okay, I can do it, right? And when he meets our needs in such ways, right? What are, what's our response supposed to be? We are to overflow in thanksgiving to God.
See, as God fills our cups, as he gives us the comfort we need, as he gives us the peace we need, as he fills us with the compassion that we need, as he gives us the self-control that we need, as he gives us the patience that we need, we, our job is to pour over into thankfulness to him. See, thankfulness is both an attitude of the heart and it's also an act of obedience. What do I mean it's an attitude of the heart? Proud, proud people are never thankful because they think they deserve whatever it is they've got. But when we realize that we're an empty cup and every drop that the Lord has poured into us is actually a blessing, it's actually a mercy, it's actually a grace to us, we can overflow with thanksgiving. We can say, we say this often around our house. When anybody says, that's not fair, right? It's usually over candy or it's over screen time, or it's over something. That's not fair. We like to remind our kids, hey, oh, what is fair again? What is fair? And then we're, we're trying to put the word fair back into a biblical worldview that we deserve nothing but death itself because we are sinners. And so if the world was just fair, we would get nothing but hell. That's what we would get, right? But we're, we don't live in fair, we live in grace. And that means everything good that's been given to us is a gift of grace that we don't deserve. And when you receive something that you don't deserve, you can thank God for it, right? Whether it's a meal whether it's a moment of peace, whether it's an insight in the, in the Bible, whether it's a text message from a friend, whether it's an online sermon, you can receive that and you can offer thanks back to God because it's a gift of grace. It's nothing I deserve. It's a gift of grace. But it's also an act of obedience. God calls us to be thankful. He calls us to verbalize our thankfulness to God. God, I thank you for this technology. God, I thank you for our pastors. God, I thank you for my wife. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for our daily bread. God, I thank you for this house that you've given me and this TV that I've got to watch it. God, I thank you that I can go walk around my neighborhood. God, I thank you for my children. God, I thank you for the evidences of grace that you are at work. I thank you for the way that you've moved into my spirit and you've done work on me. That when I look at who I was, I'm not the same guy that I used to be. God, I thank you for that. See, so thankfulness is both an attitude of the heart and it's an act of obedience. And we need to be doing both of those things. And here's the reality. You can't complain and be thankful at the same time. So Christian, what's our Christian duty at this time? What's our Christian duty? I think our Christian duty right now is to be very aware of the way that God has poured into us and to be abounding in thankfulness right now. I know everybody else, it's the cool thing to get on Facebook right now and complain about everything. It's really cool to get on and complain that you're locked down, 
that you've watched all the Netflix movies, that you, you know, whatever it is, that you're frustrated at your kids, that your kids are on your last nerve. It's cool right now to complain about everything, but that's not what the world needs, right? That's what the world is doing. Christian, let's abound in thanksgiving. In all seasons, no matter what's going on in our life, let's bring thanksgiving to the table. That attitude of the heart and that act of obedience. Paul says in other places too, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God for you right now in this season where maybe you're at home and you can't do all the things you normally do? The will of God for you is to search the goodness of God, search the cup, how he's poured into you and then abound in thanksgiving. That's God's will for you. Be thankful right now where you are, Christian. In Ephesians 5.20, Paul says this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks. So what's our calling from God right now? Be thankful. Be thankful. Now, here's what I want us to do. As you're sitting there, hopefully you're sitting there, um, maybe you're sitting there with your family or or a couple friends. I would want you, when this is over, I'm going to pray. I want you to go around the room and I want you to give each, each of you, give thanks to God for three specific things. I want you to go around the room, give thanks. Now, listen, if you're single and you're at home, The challenge to you is you can comment on this video the three things that you're thankful for right now. You you might be in a hospital bed today. You might be in a nursing home today. You might be laying in your bed right now. But I guarantee you, if you search the goodness of God, you have at least three things to be thankful for. So share them on this video. Share them around your living room. And I pray that God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, would cultivate thankful and grateful hearts among us, even in this difficult season. Let me pray. Father, if the Apostle Paul could thank you in all circumstances, even when he's in jail, even when he's beaten and shipwrecked and snake bitten, then we can search the goodness and the grace of God and we can be thankful even in our situation. Father, I'm thankful for the extra time with family. I'm thankful for the forced slowing. I'm thankful for the development of patience. I'm thankful for even the absence of community because it makes my heart crave real community so much more. I long for the day that I can wrap my arms around my brothers and sisters and I can give them a hug. I long for the day I can stand before them in person and preach the gospel once again to them. Father, we long for these things, but we're also thankful for the many mercies that you've given us in this moment. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus living the life that we can't live and dying the death that we deserve. Thank you for the spirit at work in us. Thank you for renovating our soul. Thank you for doing things that we don't even know we need in our soul, but you're doing those things because you are good and you are gracious. Father, would you, through your spirit, just give us all in this moment thankful hearts. Would you abound in our hearts in thanksgiving? We pray all of this in the powerful name of Christ Jesus, the Lord. Amen and amen.